right, greetings. Welcome to Wednesday night. Welcome to Calvary. So let's open up in prayer and we'll, we'll jump right in. Father, we bless you. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for this, uh, these few moments that we have to open up your word together, to share your word together, to share our lives with one another. I pray as we study that um, you'd lead us and guide us in our conversation and you'd help us to better understand the scriptures. It would give us greater insight. And as we see, look at some of these obscure passages and discover the meaning behind them, it would give us uh, greater depth into the Bible as a whole. We bless you and thank you. I pray you help me, Lord. Help me to communicate your word in a way that is um, efficacious in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Everybody doing well? Yeah. So I, so just like a straw poll, how many people like the colder weather? Anybody here like the colder weather? Yeah, right now it's actually pretty nice. It's actually supposed to get cold this weekend. Yeah, exactly. Monday's supposed to supposed to really hit us. Did you? I have to get, to get some done this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. If you turn it off, you got to blow it out. If you if the sub zero if it gets super cold, that really cold weather. Yeah, the, the 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 mud districts don't like you to do it because if everybody does it, it drops the water pressure. But so that's why you you always hear them say, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. But it is an effective way. It is effective. So. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into this. We're doing this study on. I dare you not to bore me with the Bible. Um, I'm not going to do. You know, we're we're in the fourth week of this. Um, uh, if, if, if you don't have the book, I recommend getting the book. It's a it's a great read. I am doing the order a little bit different. In the book, they go through all the Old Testament points, and then they go through all the New Testament points. The way, way I'm doing it, I'm taking one from the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, sometimes one or two. But I'm doing a little of both and jumping back and forth. So if you're reading the book and you want to know where I'm going to be, you can just kind of look at the last point I did, and you'll know I'll be doing the next point or two from each one in, in that order. I'm not taking them out of order. I'm just uh, other than than doing from the, fir- the front and the back at the same time. Um, main source is, like I said, Dr. Michael Heiser's book, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible. This came out of a, a lecture series he was giving. It came out of him teaching and realizing he had a lot of students who were believers who felt like uh, who he thought everybody's here to learn the Bible. This is going to be fantastic. We're in a you know we're in a Bible course to learn the Bible, and this is a Bible school. Everybody's going to be really interested, and they were like totally not interested because they felt like they had heard everything there was to hear, living their whole lives as a Christian. And he said, "Okay, challenge taken." And we're going to get into some things that that uh, you may not know about your Bible. And so the goal is. The, the, the fact that there are a lot of passages that can be perplexing, they can be weird, they can be even boring, and uh, is to take those passages and explain them. What are those confusing passages or the or those insignificant details? And let's try to connect the dots. Let's try to get a broader understanding because if it's in your Bible, it's important. If it's in your Bible, it's important. But the question is, how and why? How does it apply? What, how do we how do we make that connection? So. Um, 
one of the major things we're going to do in doing this is we're going to really try to connect with the time that the Bible was written, with the people who wrote it and the people to whom it was written. Remember one thing when you're studying the Bible. Remember one thing when you're reading the Bible. The Bible was written for us. It was not written to us. The Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. So one of the kind of a rules of thumb, if you will, of learning how to properly apply it is first learning what it meant to them before you determine what it means to us. So that's just kind of a, just a general rule of thumb. If we do that, we'll, it'll really enhance and build our Bible study. All right. So um, looking so far out in the Old Testament, we kind of studied the Old Testament cosmology. You know, when you understand they had that, that, that concept of the, the uh, land coming out of water and the water being separated and the great um, firmament and the heavens above and the waters above, that, that, that ancient Near Eastern picture, they had, that's the same picture they had. You see it all throughout the scriptures. And you, when you know that, you start reading a lot of the Psalms and the prophets and different texts, even the, even the creation story, you can, it, comes, it jumps right off the page. Oh, that's what they're talking about. Um, next thing we studied in the, from the Old Testament was walk like an Israelite, which means what? And this is important because it applies to us. The Israelites were people of their time. They were people of the same, you know, they were similar to the other cultures around them. They lived the same way the other cultures around them different, did. And we see it all throughout the text. Not everything in the Bible is unique to Israel. In fact, there's a lot that's not unique. So when we find something that's unique, that's the moment to say, aha, that's God speaking through this in a, in a, in a significant way because he's jumping out in the same way in our lives. If you were to take the average Christian out of the average church and put them on the street next to the average person, you wouldn't be able to tell which is which because we're mostly the same. It's those things that are different that define us as believers, and we have to dig beneath the surface to find those. Same thing in the Scriptures. So if we understand that about the Scriptures, we, we, we can understand the Scriptures themselves better because we can see them within the culture, within the written, and that becomes explained to us better. How are you doing? It's good to see you. Uh, next one that we looked at was even the Bible needed upgrading. Okay, and we're like, what? What do you mean need upgrading? And, and we looked at several of the verses. We did this one last week where, um, uh, where we got a better understanding of what inspiration actually is. Inspiration is not an author plugging into the Holy Spirit and then, and then scribing what's, you know, kind of uh, uh, transporting through them. It is a uh, human being with all of the talents and the gifts and the ability and all of their learning, all of their motivations, applying themselves to writing and the Holy Spirit inspiring them while they're doing it. It is a very much human God cooperation. Um, and through that, God provides to us something that's authoritative, something that is inspired, something that's infallible um, in, a, in a very unique way. Um, but but we also know as we go through, there's lots of little things that as the as later um, compilers of the scriptures came together, they made small edits. They made little edits. Um, you know, one of the typical ones that you'll hear is the, 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 the cities of um, Ramses and Pithon. Well, they weren't named that when Israelite was when the Israelites were there. But that would have been what they were called when the author who compiled the version we have. Why? So that the people who were reading it then would know what cities he was talking about. 
And we, and we see this, we see, we talked about um, uh, uh, Psalm 51 in the same way. This is a psalm of repentance on David. But the author who compiled it added a couple of verses to speak to Israel for their need to repentance. And so these, this, if we understand that, we, 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 don't, we get a better understanding of inspiration. It's one of the things I run into a lot talking to Christians is Christians have a wrong understanding of inspiration. We think much more along the lines like, you know, like um, that this was a dictation from God. It, it wasn't a dictation from God. Now, there are places that God specifically dictates, right? You know, like, the, I don't know, the Ten Commandments. But, um, uh, but overall, it was, it was godly men who were moved by the Spirit, but the, the genius in their writing comes through um, in, in, uh, as a created entity of God and God moving through that. So we, we took a look at some of that. The next thing we looked at was spell checking in the Bible. And this was really fascinating because there are some, there are some words in the original Hebrew that are, that are obscure. We don't know. Uh, what those words are. And so when you look in your Bibles, like the one we looked at was uh, Genesis 49.10, right? We looked at the word Shiloh. Um, in certain, uh, certain translators translate it one way, others translate it a different way. Why? Because the original Hebrew is a bit obscure. And it could be this and it could be that. And, and so we have two concepts here. We have translation, but we also have interpretation. So before they can translate, they have to interpret and they have to interpret. They have to know what the original was. And there are passages that are that. And then you'll even read in the footnotes in your Bible. You know, the, the Hebrew's obscure, the Greek's obscure, and so this is why you'll see the NASB translate it one way, the ESV does it another way, the NIV does it another way. It's not because um, you know one of them's in error. It's because they've chosen a particular interpretation of the original language and then translated from that interpretation. And, uh, and, and that's fine. Um, uh, uh, we, we also looked at passages where we see the um, New Testament authors doing the same thing and pulling things out of the Septuagint, uh, you know, using the Septuagint translation for us. All right. So then we jumped over and we looked at some, uh, some passages in the New Testament. We discovered Jesus literally declaring war on hell. And as we discovered cosmic geography in the gates of hell, terrestrial geography as he's standing at the, the foot of Mount Hermon and all that that meant. And if you've got questions about that. By the way, all of these subjects we've already gone over when we do our Q&A at the end. If you want to bring up something about any of them, you want to bring up questions or whatever, things you thought about, bring them up. Let's talk about them. Um, we talked about guardian angels, how Jesus talks about little ones having a guardian angel, how angels are commissioned by God to act on his direction, how they are ministering spirits on behalf of God, and how the, the writer of Hebrews tells us, hey, listen, be hospitable, because you may very well be entertaining an angel and not even know it. You may, you may have an angel actually ministering to you, and, and, and God's testing you, and you don't even know it. So be a hospitable person. Be a hospitable person. This, we were actually instructed in, by the writer of Hebrews in that. All right. So the, the, the last thing we mentioned in the um, New Testament uh, that we've gone through so far um, is... Um, uh, does the New Testament misquote the Old Testament? Why? Because sometimes you'll read a quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament, and you go back and you look it up, because just you know, because you're just that way, like some of us, and you go, wait a minute, that looks different. Why is that different? 
Well, most of the time, they're quoting from something called the Septuagint. So what is the Septuagint? It would be like today, I, you know, I mostly read from the ESV. I'll read from other translations, but my typical translation is the ESV. It's a translation of the original. Well, the Septuagint was a translation into Greek of the original. And when they're writing the, the, the New Testament, the author's writing the New Testament, they're writing in Greek. And they're writing it to people who speak Greek. And they're reading from the Greek version of the Bible. So what version of the Bible are they going to quote from? The Greek one. So people could go look it up just like we do. And, and sometimes we even find that they may have had some older versions than we have um some they may have some text with some variants that that um that we don't have but no it's not an error the other thing you have to remember is that that very often new testament authors when they're quoting the old testament they're not trying to give us a copy of the old testament they're trying to teach us something from it and so they're quoting in a way to teach from it and that's something else to keep in mind as you look at how the new testament authors use the old testament all right so um, tonight, what are we going to look at tonight? We're going to look at two things. In the Old Testament, we're going to look at why circumcision. And because if you stop and think about it for a minute, circumcision is a weird thing. And we'll, we'll touch on that. So we're going to look at why circumcision. Why is circumcision important? And then the second thing we're going to look at is this passage where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And what we're going to ask ourselves is not, um, not, did it happen? Because it's not really disputed. What's disputed is when did it happen? And we're going we're gonna to parse that. We're going to take that apart. What's this about? What's Jesus talking about? So there's where we're going to go. All right. So part, uh, first, the Old Testament. Let's take a look at why circumcision. Um, lots of scriptures to look at. Now, uh, circumcision. Excuse me. Circumcision is mentioned almost a hundred times in the Bible. It's mentioned. It's it's a very it's a uh, has a huge is not a huge but a, a central focus in both Old Testament and New Testament theology. So this is a subject that comes up across our Bibles, you know, from the beginning to the end. Here's the thing, though, and I love this. I'm quoting directly from Heiser here. If we're honest, that just sounds weird. Circumcision. Why is this a sign of a covenant? Why is the, the everybody, anybody not know what circumcision is? I'll make sure everybody knows what it is. You know, the removal of the foreskin from, from um, the males at, the day, at eight days. We'll actually read it in the text, okay? Why is that a sign of God's covenant? Why that? Okay, that seems weird. All right. So here we are. This is in the book of Romans. I'm going to read some text. We're going to start in uh, chapter 4, verse 9. It says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Notice how an entire group of people are referred to as the circumcised. Or also for the uncircumcised. So we're defining people groups by this term circumcision here. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It, w- it was not after, but before he was circumcised, Paul says. Jumping down to verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith 
while he was still uncircumcised. So God counts him as righteous because he trusts in God. There is a righteousness that's imputed to Abraham that, that, that Abraham receives because he believes God. And as a result of this, God seals him with the sign of this covenant of, of, of circumcision. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Paul's making this theological argument here that Abraham's the father of all, both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. See, you know, what he's speaking to is the Jews would clearly say Abraham's our father. He's our father. and We're going to see why. Abraham's our father. What Paul is saying is he was counted righteous before he was circumcised, so he's the father of all, not just the circumcised, but all who come by faith. All right. So, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So now he kind of narrows down Abraham's fatherhood within the circumcised by saying, even if you are, you still have to have the faith of Abraham to consider him your father. Um, and so we jump over, we're going to look over in Galatians 2. So what we're doing is we're just looking a little bit of the theology of circumcision here, and then we're going to, we'll figure out why this thing as we go through. So we're looking at how the New Testament's treating it. We're going to go back and look at it in the Old Testament a little bit, and then we're going to figure out why. Why is God doing this? So Galatians 2.1. Then after 14 years, Paul's telling his personal testimony here. He's saying, I went up to Jeru- again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So he went with Barnabas, taking Titus. So he went with someone who's circumcised, taking with him someone who's not. This is kind of what's coming through here. Um, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So notice... Paul didn't get the gospel from somebody else. He was preaching a gospel he received directly from Jesus. And so after several years of doing what I'm doing, after my Italian's coming out, after several years of doing this, he, he's going up to lay out this gospel he's preaching to compare it to the gospel of those who seem to be influential, the, the other apostles. He says, he says um, um, uh, in order to make sure I wasn't ran in vain. Verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. See, I was telling you up front, Paul's pointing out. He and Barnabas went together to Jerusalem, natural. They're of the circumcised. They're taking along one who's not important to the story. Why? Because what's going to be required of him? Verse 4. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, we're preaching the same gospel. This isn't me making something up. I'm not adding something that's talking about a gospel different than they're talking about. So don't say, here's Paul out here in the country trying to teach something that's not normative to the gospel. This is what he's saying here to the Galatians. Verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. See, here's the distinction. He had a mission. 
And his mission was to take this gospel to those who weren't circumcised. Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Peter was entrusted with the mission. Paul was entrusted with the mission. They were entrusted with the same message, but to two different groups. They had the same message, but their differentiation in their mission. Now, look, look, that doesn't mean Paul never preached to someone who was circumcised. It doesn't mean Peter never reached out. It meant the, the, the main emphasis of who they were seeking to reach. Verse 8, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Now we get the first substitute, you know, antecedent to, uh, to uncircumcised, right? Uncircumcised is a reference to Gentiles, non-Jewish. So that would tell us uncircumcised refers to um, natural Israel. Um, in verse 9, and when James and Cephas, Cephas, by the way, is a, a um, is the Greek version of the Aramaic name for Peter. So it just, it just, it's another way of saying Peter. Kepha in Aramaic, Cephas in Greek. Um, it's a way of saying Peter. Um, uh, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the, the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Notice he doesn't include Titus in this. Why? Because he's recognizing this calling as Jews to take this message that's given to the Jews, but, uh, um, but not for the Jews. It's for everyone. Just like the Bible was written to a people, but for everyone. Do you see that? All right, let's keep going. Verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Um, in verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So when it says they came from James, it doesn't mean that James had this. It just means that they were coming from where James was. It was not saying that this is James's doctrine. That's important to pick up on. But what you had is you had those um, who, uh, who were wanting... Uh, um, to require Peter to separate himself from Gentiles until they were like them as members of, not only members of the family of God through Christ, but members of Israel through circumcision. All right, let's keep going. I'm going to jump down to chapter 5 here in Galatians, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And we're going to see this in a minute. He says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. We're going to see why I'm going to hold the punchline until it get to the end. Just keep that in your mind. But Paul is saying, if you accept circumcision, not on a medical basis, on a religious basis, on a spiritual basis... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Interesting. Um, for, through this, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So um, this was a big issue. This was a big issue. In fact, uh, if you were to go over to Acts 15 and study Acts 15, I would submit to you guys, think, think about this for a minute. We know what side we come down, most of us, of the issue because of how we've come up in the church. I would submit to you, if you came up as a Jew, waiting for the Jewish Messiah under the Jewish relationship through the Torah, and all of a sudden Gentiles started coming in, I would submit to you, we would be struggling, thinking, well, why wouldn't they have to be circumcised? Look, this is the Jewish scriptures. It's the Jewish Messiah. It's the Jewish message. If they want to be a part of it, they've got to be part of the Jewish family, right? Right? Now, there's a punchline here. There's a reason why not. But it's not illogical to come to that conclusion. It's not illogical to come to that conclusion. This is why Acts 15 comes about, right? You get certain members of the circumcision party who are... who. Are, now, keep one thing in mind here. I'm going to point out a verse. I didn't put it in my notes. I'm going to point out a verse. and Go look it up. This is in Acts... Um, I think it's Acts 20. It's at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. It's the very end of it. He comes to Jerusalem, and he's bringing some of the, the Gentiles with him. He's got this offering. Remember that Peter, right here, he, they, they said, remember the poor? He's bringing this offering for the poor, keeping his word. It's what we want to do, bringing this offering. And they had this conversation, and, 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 and Paul and James begin to go into this conversation. And, and Paul is talking about all the amazing things done among the Gentiles that God has done. Look at what happened. I've got to tell you this miracle. I've got to tell you this story. Look at all these Gentiles who are coming to the Lord. And what James says is something very interesting. He says, that's, that's amazing. That's so cool. Now, we want to show you what God's been doing here in Jerusalem. Look at the, the word in Greek, the myriads who have come to believe. And then it adds this phrase right after that. And they are all zealous for the Torah. You see, coming to Christ made them more hungry to want to live out their covenant relationship with God. Not less. Not less. Now, how many of us, when we first came to Christ, understood everything it meant to live by the Scriptures? Yet, how many of us might have had some dogmatic positions that we came later to discover were not proper, perhaps the way as dogmatic as we should have been? But we were hungry to live the Scriptures. Interesting. They failed to make a, a, a very important distinction. And again, I'm, give, I'm not going to give the punchline away until we get there. All right. So this circumcision was a big issue. This is why they had this big powwow in Acts 15 uh, when um, about 15 years in to the preaching of the gospel and, and this, this, this whole uh, um, um, uh, uh, Paul and, and a lot of his group, they go, to, um, they go from Antioch to Jerusalem to have a powwow to decide this out. How are we going to do this, guys? What is the gospel actually telling us for um, uh, the distinction between Jews and Gentiles? And they deal with it there. We're not going to do that tonight. All right. So circumcision, what is it? It's the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. 
So here it is in Genesis. It's a kind of a long passage, but we'll, we, we need. I, I'm, I put all the scriptures in here because I think it's really good for us to get it out of the scripture, see it in its context. All right, this is in Genesis 17. Here we go. God said to Abraham, "As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you, throughout their generations." So um, there's a covenant relationship God has with Abraham, and, and He's calling Abraham to obedience to it. Not only him, but all of his generations. And He says, "This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised." You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So notice, the purpose of this circumcision is a sign of the covenant relationship that God established through Abraham. Remember in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, God divorces himself from humanity. God is done. Deuteronomy 32.8, he puts the sons of God in between him and mankind, divides mankind up according to the numbers of the sons of God, separates them out. Genesis 12, Abraham comes along and through him, the seed of promises of Genesis 3 is going to come about. He is going to be this, through him, the seed is going to come that's going to bless the nations. There is this promise. We're going to look at it a little bit here. But there's a sign for that. There's a sign for that covenant and the sign. Now, you'll notice this. Almost every covenant, in fact, every covenant in the Scripture, there's a sign for it. Every one of them has a sign. And the sign of this covenant is circumcision. He who is eight, eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Now, we have since learned that... Um, about the human body. We've learned a lot about the human body since that time. And one of the interesting things we discovered is that uh, in, um, as a general rule in the human body, you don't have the ability to coagulate blood well until the huh, eighth day. It's vitamin K developing in your system. Yeah. And so one day a, a, a young person went up to, one, to a rabbi and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, is it true that, that, that we don't circumcise to the eighth day? Because, you know, we discovered that the, the blood doesn't coagulate to the eighth day, and then and that's the day. And the rabbi says, well, that might be why you do it, but I do it because God said. Both he, and who, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. You, uh, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Notice, it not only was for the natural born, it was all who were connected to the household. Because if you were connected to the household, you were considered part of the household. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right. Now, here's the thing we need to know about circumcision. Because it sounds like, oh, this is a, this is, remember, this ties in. See, these are how these points are going to tie together. Right? If we think that the Bible and the culture of the Bible is only the culture of the Israelites, then we're going to miss some important things. Guess what? Israelites weren't the only people who were circumcised. There were other peoples who were circumcised. It wasn't unique to Israel. It was widely practiced in the ancient Near East. It wasn't always the same method. It certainly didn't have the same meaning. 
but it wasn't unique and new only to Israel. It wasn't like you could point out somebody who was a Jew and somebody who was, wasn't in the ancient Near East among several people groups just by determining whether or not they were circumcised. Here, here's Jeremiah. Check this out. Jeremiah tells us this is in um, Jeremiah chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who were circumcised merely in the flesh. Who is that? Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of, of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So notice, he's saying, if you weren't circumcised for the right reason, or if you're going through practices that are opposed to the right reason for circumcision, or if you're not circumcised in heart, all of the above, God says is inappropriate circumcision. Isn't that fascinating here, Jeremiah? All right. Archaeologists have discovered circumcision in Syria and Phoenicia. These are, these are facts of history. Um, there are ancient texts that, that talk about ancient Egyptians all the way back 2200 B.C., hundreds of years before um, uh, 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 um, the Israelites ever even go into Egypt. And they're, they're, practicing, um, they're practicing circumcision. So Joshua commanded the Israelite men when they're crossing over in the Jordan. This is an interesting thing Heiser brings up. When the, when the men are the, the, the men who came out of Egypt, this generation this, uh, who, who inherit the promised land, as they're getting ready to cross over the promised land, um, uh, Joshua tells them to be recircumcised. Now, why? Why would he tell them to be recircumcised? I mean, this is, here it is. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And the Lord said to Joshua, in verse 9, Today I have rolled away. So I'm jumping from verse 2 to jump. Now you can read the whole thing, but for time I'm just jumping down. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of the place is uh, called Gilgal to this day. What does that mean he rolled away the approach of Egypt? I like Heiser's. Heiser makes the supposition it's quite possible. The reason why they had to be circumcised a second time is because they had an Egyptian circumcision the first time. They were following the practice of Egypt. That's where they grew up. They weren't following the Abrahamic circumcision. And so, look, you're about to go into the promised land. You need to be circumcised appropriately. We already see Jeremiah dealing with it. Now we see Joshua dealing with it here. So they were re-circumcised. The point being that it needs to be mixed with faith as well. Um, All right. It doesn't appear... That the purpose, so this is what's important. This is why I'm bringing this up. Because we started off with, what are we trying to figure out? Why circumcision? Well, let me tell you why it's not. It's not to distinguish them from all their neighbors. Some practiced it. Many practiced it. Some did not. It would not have been a distinguishing fact. Okay? That's not why circumcision. All right? So then why? Now notice something. And we're going to break it down so we can see it. We're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to look at the story so we can see. You might come up with the meaning before I even get there. You're going to break it down so we can see it. When was Abraham told by God to be circumcised? When? Here it is in Genesis 18, verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. They were advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So what do we got? 
we got both Abraham and Sarah were past childbearing age. It was too late for them to have children by any natural means. This is impossible. Yet, yet, through whose seed and womb was God going to fulfill his promise? This covenant he made with Abraham, through whose seed and through whose womb was he going to fulfill this? Through whose seed was he going to create an innumerable offspring out of Abraham? Is out of the, there it is, verse 21. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Verse chapter 18, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At that at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Now, here's what's being promised. This is in Genesis chapter 12. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse uh, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's going to make Abraham a great nation. He's going to uh, be an innumerable people. He's going to do it through Sarah. And he's promising this when they are um, completely dried up humanly to have a baby, to have a child. Thus, God could only keep his promise to Abraham through Sarah By a miracle. The only way he keeps his promise is if a miracle happens. That's it. No miracle. No fulfillment of promise from God. So the miraculous birth of Isaac is literally the key to understanding why circumcision. Why circumcision is the sign of the covenant with Abraham. Circumcision didn't become the sign until after God made his promise to Abraham and Sarah. After he promised to them. After they're too old. Now it's the sign. So, follow this. After making the promise, literally, all the males in the household of Abraham had to be circumcised. After the promise is made, after they're too old for children... After it's impossible, human, humanly impossible for the promise to be made, here it is. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give her a son, give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no. Let me be very specific here, Abraham. But Sarah, shall bear, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But 
I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And we had finished talking with him. God went up to Abraham, which meant literally the Lord appeared to him bodily, physically. He's having this conversation with God as, and, um, as man. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of all their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. And Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in his house, those bought with the money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So, when you're circumcised as an adult, it makes you incapacitated for a few days. You're just not going to do anything after that happens. So here you have this period of time when literally all the men are now incapacitated for this period of time after they're circumcised. Literally every man, woman, and child knew that circumcision was directly connected to God's promise to Abraham. Every single one in Abraham's household knew exactly why they were getting circumcised. Somehow this was tied to God's promise to Abraham. Now, it may not have made full sense to them that they went ahead and did it until Sarah was actually pregnant. (laughs) Because then they're actually seeing the miracle birth. Oh, my goodness. Now, this is what I want us to get. From that point on, from that point in history, this is a historical fact. From that point on, every male uh, understood why they had to be um, circumcised. Their entire race, their very existence began as a miraculous act from God. That's why this is the sign of this covenant. Every woman was reminded of this when she had sexual relations with her husband, with her Israelite husband, when her sons were circumcised. Circumcision was a visible, continuous reminder that Israel owned its existence, owed its existence to Yahweh, who created them out of nothing. This is Paul in Romans. He is able to take that which is dead and make it alive. He is able to take nothing and create something. You take a dead womb with no seed and brings an entire uh, people group. Now, here's the thing. When we move to the New Testament, membership in God's family is circumcision neutral. You don't have to be circumcised to enter into God's family in the New Testament. This is why the New Testament is circumcision neutral. If you're a Jew and you're recognizing that you're a member of the Jewish community, be circumcised. If you're a Gentile, To be in God's family doesn't require you to be Jewish. It requires you to have the faith of Abraham, not the circumcision of Abraham. Its purpose is different. There's a different sign to this covenant. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love, Paul tells the Galatians. That's what counts. Yes, circumcision may define that I, uh, if I am a Jew, that I am a member of the family of Israel, a son of Abraham, but it doesn't define that I'm a member of the family of Christ. For that, I have to have a circumcised 
heart. And that's done through faith. Let me finish. Circumcision is the sign of the miraculous existence of the Jewish people through whom the Messiah came. It's a sign of, this, of that, that, that miracle seed promised to Eve in Genesis 3 that's going to crush the serpent's head. Circumcision is the sign that God miraculously brings that seed himself. This miraculous birth into the family of God, but the miraculous birth that we have into the family of God is through faith in the Messiah, not circumcision. And this is the point Paul's making. If you submit to circumcision thinking that's bringing you righteousness, you've made Christ of nothing. You've made Christ nothing. You've fallen from grace, he says. Baptism into Christ becomes a sign similar to circumcision for members, for family members in Christ. Now, there are some doctors who teach it's, a, it's, it's kind of a replacement. I don't believe it's a replacement. I believe it's a type. In other words, this is a sign of a covenant. This is a sign of a covenant. So they share characteristics that are similar. So we can look at one and be informed of the other, not replace one with the other. And there's, ask me why in the Q&A why I bring that up. But here it is in Colossians. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. We've been filled in Christ. He is the head. He is the rule of all authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, in Christ we have a circumcision, not a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. That heart which takes off the fleshly nature and gives to us the perfected nature of Christ, the righteous nature of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says this, we have been perfected, we are being sanctified. That's that circumcision of the heart. By the way, circumcision of the heart goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. It's not new in the New Testament. It's always been what's required of the people of God. It's done by faith. Like circumcision, baptism is a response driven by faith, and both are signs for men and women. All right. So uh, we can take a pause here. Are there any questions on, on this here? I know I'm seeing lots of pensive. Carmen? The circumcision of the heart. could be because remember the prophets prophesied against those who were circumcised in the flesh but did not have a circumcised heart right no I would say um Yeah, so you're making the wrong parallel. Okay, you're making the wrong parallel. And this is why I made the statement I'm making. They're not a one-for-one. One. Okay, because there are some doctrines that teach them as a one-for-one, one, and they're not. The wrong parallel would be to say that the parents are stepping in. It's much more along the parallel of how Paul talks about 
the faith of the parents sanctifies their children. It doesn't save their children. It sanctifies them. It brings them into um, a place uh, where um, uh, they are uh, um, uh, under the covering of the family of God. All right? But that child still has to make their own choice and decision for themselves. Right. You know, again, but, but, all right, so if you're thinking babies and baptism, I would submit to you, this is a different conversation, and we can talk about it more after we do the next one. Okay. All right, so let me, let me say it this way. It was the parents responding in faith to God's word to keep his word, and that responding in faith to keep his word meant they were going to behave in a certain way uh, um, uh, in obedience to his word in all ways that God calls that. So that means they're going to behave with their children in a certain way. They're going to behave with their spouses in a certain way. They're going to behave in their relationship with one another in a certain way. And part of that behavior was the circumcision. And why? Why was it there? It was a constant reminder to the mothers, to the fathers, to everyone that we exist. We owe our existence to God. When this child is being circumcised on the eighth day, are they celebrating that they are a member of the family of Abraham? Yes. Um, why? Because of the flesh that they, they are of the family of Abraham. However, the scriptures also make it very clear that um, a priori to any relationship with God is faith. That just because you may have the physical mark of circumcision doesn't mean you have a heart of circumcision and the prophets bring this up over and over and over again it goes all the way back to the torah the writer of hebrews talks about those in the wilderness who came out of egypt who fell because of their unbelief and which led to disobedience so um uh it wasn't that it's salvation circumcision wasn't a salvific act it was the sign of a covenant relationship. And covenant still requires God is going to act to keep his side of the covenant, period, number one. Number two, God offers those who, to whom he is giving the covenant to receive the blessing of covenant by acting in obedience to it, which would be acting in faith towards it. Does that make sense? It's a little bit complex, but I, everybody with me? Did I lose anybody? Okay. All right. Very good. Let's jump in. Any other questions on this? I just thought this was super cool because um, circum- we don't really talk about circumcision much. It seems to be something weird. I have seen it come up as an issue. But how many of us step back and think that this is speaking to this miraculous event in the life of Abraham and Sarah where God makes this promise and they hold on to that promise so much so he literally circumcises everybody in his household, in obedience to God. You see, what's unique about it, Abraham's faith is this, it's not that other people have not done things similar to what Abraham did. It's that Abraham did it with no precedent. Abraham did it with no There wasn't anybody who went before him demonstrating this. 
And over and over, he steps out and trusts God and does these things, you know, 75 years old. Leave everything and go to someplace and have nothing. Start over. I mean, who does that? You know, and from there, it just kept growing and growing. And, you know, we can look at him and he's a human being. He didn't do everything right. But what he did right, what he had a heart after God. Why? Because he acted in faith. And he demonstrated it over and over and over again. And so we get this, we get this, this covenant. Now, no wonder it was so important to the Jews of the first century. Hey, this is our identity. We're here by a miracle of God. And if you want God's miracle in your life and all that he's promised, you have to do this too. But what they missed was what Jesus shared with the woman at the well. Yeah, we had it right about location, but it's no longer about location. All right, let's jump over to the New Testament. Can we go there? Are we ready? Can we change gears? We're going to have to put it. We're going to have to think about a whole different subject now because this is a completely different subject. All right, so this is going to be this passage where Jesus is talking and he says, "I saw Satan fall like lightning." Now, when did that occur? So um, I'm quoting here from Heiser. This is in one of the more enigmatic verses in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus tells his disciples, he says this. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is in Luke 10:18. So the question, is not, um, a question isn't about the what of Jesus' statement, that, that Satan fell. Nobody really questions that. It's clear Satan is under judgment. Okay, the, the statement is Satan is under judgment. We've, we've got that. The confusion is over the when of the statement. When does this happen? Now, um, it might, uh, hang on, let me make sure I get the right here. It might sound like a reference to when Satan became Satan um, before the Garden of Eden. When did he go, when did he become, you know, go from Lucifer to Satan, uh, abandoning his status among God's heavenly hosts? But that conclusion is too hasty. That's not what actually is going on here. We have three options. There are three options here. So this is, this is the timing of Satan's fall, uh, his, his judgment, the timing of his judgment, the fall into judgment. It's either before, during, or after Jesus' own time. Those are our three options. So we're going to examine each one. We're going to look at the evidence. And then we're going to, you can make your own conclusion. I know which one I fall in. Um, so if you follow me, you're right. Otherwise, no, just joking. Um, uh, but we're going to look at the we're going to look at the evidence for the three different three different options. So option one, before Jesus's own time, I saw Satan fall like light from heaven. His this is his judgment. This there are some who would hold that this was before. In fact, that's the 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 single most common interpretation. Jesus is seeing or remembering the original fall of Satan. That's that's how most see this. However, it really doesn't actually make sense in the context. That's the problem with it. The problem is, is the context in which it's given to us, the context in which Jesus says it, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't reference what they're talking about. So what happens is this. Jesus is he's called the, 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 his disciples together, and he sent them out, and they're out healing, and they're out preaching, and they're out saying, that. what are they preaching? Now, this is really, really a cue here. They're preaching very specifically, the kingdom of God has drawn near. And when they're doing it, they're giving signs of it. What are the signs? They're healing people. They're casting out demons. 
So the evidence that the kingdom of God has drawn near are the signs they're performing. So Jesus sent them out, and they're coming back, and they're all excited. Here it is in verse 10 of Luke, verse 1, I mean, chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Amen, Lord Jesus. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now notice the spiritual reference we have there. Okay, it doesn't sound like uh, judgment had come yet. Anyway, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Verse 6, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, what? The kingdom of God has come near to you. Heal the sick. And demonstrating what? The kingdom of God has come near. So the disciples, they return. They're amazed. They're excited. And what are they excited about? Even the demons are subject to to Jesus' name. Oh, my goodness. Demons were subject to your name. Now, why would they be so excited about that? Let's examine this a little bit more. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What does Jesus respond to that? And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Luke is making a very clear connection between uh, three things. The coming of the kingdom of God, the defeat of demons, and the defeat of Satan. He's making a very clear connection here. How can Satan's fall be a remote past event and the kingdom not be established then? Why was Satan still powerful when Jesus showed up on the scene? You remember, what does he say? All the kingdoms of the earth belong to me. I can give them whoever they want. Bow down to me and I'll give them to you. And Jesus never disputes the truth of that. Never disputes the truth of that. Even with the kingdom of Israel under David in the presence of God in the temple, the power and influence of Satan is evident on nearly every page of Old Testament history. It's a quote from Heiser. You see the power and influence of him on, every, on nearly every page. So clearly, option one doesn't really fit the context of what's going on in Luke. So let's look at option two. What's option two? Was Jesus referring to the judgment of Satan during his own life? Is this what he's referring to? So in quoting from Heiser, the view that Jesus was referring to Satan's fall during his own ministry is better but it also has problems. There's some problems here. Here's, here's the point that I want us to get out of this as to why the disciples were so excited about the demons being subject to Jesus' name. Show me one place in the Bible where demons are cast out prior to the presence of Jesus on earth. Hmm. This didn't happen. There's something 
different about the presence of Jesus on earth to which even demons are being cast out by his name. That didn't happen in biblical history. You got plenty of people healed. You got plenty of you know, people raised from the dead. You don't see demons being overcome. Fascinating. I have often wondered and pondered that you, when you get to the New Testament, demon theology is well developed, but it doesn't jump out of just, it, it's, there's not a linear progression right out of the Old Testament into the New Testament. It's actually developed through Second Temple literature. You see, we see it developed there. But man, you see it in the New Testament. All of a sudden, demons manifesting, Jesus casting them out, gone, bam. There is a confrontation of kingdoms that's not presented anywhere else in the Scripture. That display of power, as well as the announcement of the kingdom and the ruling authority of God on earth, is unmistakable. Again, that's a quote from Heiser. So, the gospel consistently demonstrates the kingdom of God overcoming Satan. That's one thing we see throughout the gospels. You know, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. His time is short. He, uh, you know, I mean, just you see these quotes all throughout the gospels. The kingdom of God coming and the overcoming of Satan. Now, he was casting, this is in Luke 11, verse 14. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. This is um, uh, Luke talking about Jesus. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. I'm like, what kind of sign are you? Anyway, let me keep going here. I don't know, I just, when you don't want to see, you don't want to see. Um, uh, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Notice he's saying his kingdom standing. There's a confrontation going on. Interesting. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then what? Jesus is telling. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice the contrast. Out of the the mouth of Jesus himself. Notice the contrast right there. If I'm casting them out and I'm doing it by the finger of God, God's kingdom is here. It's a sign that the kingdom of God has come to earth. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he is trusted and divides his spoil. Who is the strong man? Jesus. He takes and divides his spoil. The gates of hell shall not prevail. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, when, with Jesus having bound the strong man, Satan, he and his disciples can plunder Satan's realm. When Jesus binds the strong man, he and his disciples can plunder Satan's realm. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. It is no longer about geography. Right? Because I don't go to the temple, I bring the temple with me. And so when I go and I preach the gospel to someone and the kingdom of God comes there, I don't have to take them back to Jerusalem. They are literally translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. This is Colossians. 
right in that moment. The kingdom of darkness is overcome. This seems to tie in with what Jesus says after his statement about Satan, where he grants the disciples power over the forces of evil. There it is in Luke 10, 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Obviously, serpents and scorpions are euphemistic references to uh, evil, evil powers. Um, and all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nonetheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The rejoicing isn't that the dark kingdom of darkness is overcome. It's that the kingdom of God has come. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But these verses also produce some difficulties. So if we think this happens strictly during the time of Jesus, there are some problems we've got to overcome. Here's Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So if Satan has been judged, how is he, how is he demanding to sift Simon like wheat? Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So we see, what we see is a, a conflict in the kingdom. Satan demanding something and Jesus interceding. Luke twenty-two thirty-three. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny, me three, times, until you deny three times that you know me. And then jump down to verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And sure enough, three times, Peter denies. But, but the setup to the story is that is a direct reflection of Satan's demands to sift Peter. That's what Jesus said. Depends on whether you trust what he said. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Paul's writing this in 2 Corinthians 12, this is verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. So once again, we're seeing not a full overcoming of the power of the enemy in Paul's letters. Jump over to Thessalonians. This is 1 Thessalonians 2. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Here's Paul literally saying, I could not come to you because I was hindered from coming to you by Satan. I mean, unless you think he's just using a figure of speech, which I don't think so. So that takes us to option three. Was this after the time of Jesus? Was it after his own time? All right, so let's examine the evidence here. This brings us to the third option. This is Jesus' statement refers to a time subsequent, sometime after his own time. Is Jesus referring to sometime after his own time? So uh, since Satan was and is still alive and well with respect to his ongoing opposition to the church everywhere, how many know that Satan is actively opposed to the church everywhere? Okay? If you don't, Open yourself up to a ministry called VOM and, and, and Bible Project and some of these others, and you will see it. Uh, read, read the works of um, uh, Nick Ripkin. You, know, you'll, you will see it. 
It makes sense to see Satan's fall like lightning from heaven as a future event. It makes sense to see that since we still see him active. The wording used by Luke, I saw, was quite common in the Old Testament. Let me just tell you what he's saying here. We go through the Old Testament, and guess what you're going to find out? When prophets prophesied, they very often saw, said, I saw, I saw, I saw. They're prophesying about something in the future. I saw, I saw, I saw, past tense. What's Jesus doing? He's prophesying. I saw. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a series of prophecies, and Daniel is one example of this. Now, we've already studied these prophecies when we went through the book of Daniel, um, but I'm just going to look at these verses so that we can get a flavor of how prophets were using this. Because remember, there's a time and a context for what we're looking at. All right. So, the visions of my head as I lay on, Daniel says this, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. When he's talking about, this was actually Nebuchadnezzar. Um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is in Daniel 7. This is Daniel. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven. And he's clear, he clearly talks about, um, he talks about some events that already happened, but he clearly talks about future events that hadn't happened. Yet he saw them, past tense, same thing. Daniel 7, 4. Then as I looked, it's a similar language. As I looked, its wings were plucked off. And I'm just going to go through them quick, quickly. 7, 6. After this, I looked, and behold, like a leopard with four wings. So again, he's prophesying about a future kingdom that hasn't come yet, but he's talking about something he saw in the past. Um, Daniel 7, 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Same scenario. Uh, kingdoms that have not yet occurred, he's talking about in the past tense. 7-9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancients of days took his seat. He was getting this final culmination of, of all of history, uh, uh, and he's talking about it in a past tense vision. Um, I looked because of the sound of the great words, you know, the Antichrist figure, that, uh, that horn that we talked about. Clearly, Daniel didn't see the Antichrist. You know, clearly, he's prophesying something in the future, but he's using that past tense, I saw, I looked language. And again in 13 and again in 721. So uh, we see this pattern. And here's a quote from Heiser. And I I actually like Heiser's view on this. I agree with Heiser's view on this. He says this, my own view is a combination of the second and third view. That there is both an overcoming of the second of the Satan's kingdom when Jesus comes. It's continuing now in which there is a spiritual battle, but there is a level of overcoming that's already happened. There is a victory, but there's a final culmination that is coming. Um. It seems quite clear that the rule of God began at the ministry of Jesus. When we talk about the rule of God, we're talking about the worldwide rule of God. The gospel going from being geocentric to, uh, to theocentric, heart-centric. The temple going from being in a place to being in a person. But it is, but it is, as a, but it is a rule in progress that will reach a final culmination in a future time. There's a, a lot of ways the scholars talk about the kingdom of God as they use this language. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. The kingdom of God's already here, but it's not yet here in its fullness. In the same way, Satan has been overcome already, but not yet in his fullness. Does that make sense? Because if you're seeing this as a, as a contrasting war, it is the kingdom of God that's overcoming his kingdom. The already means there has been a level of overcoming. The not yet means it's not fully overcoming. But when it is fully here, it will be fully overcome. 
Um, as, the, as the Old Testament repeatedly reminds us, and Jesus affirms this in Luke 10:18, on that day, the defeat of our cosmic enemy will be swift and final. When, on that day, that day is the, 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 the time in which Jesus comes to set all things and final. Um, uh, so, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Uh, what's he doing? He's prophesying um, uh, based on the context of them experiencing it. And we get to experience the same thing with the hope that we, uh, not, not like maybe hope, but with the assured hope that it will one day be finally destroyed. This is how we can say that Jesus overcame the devil and also say we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, rulers, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Why it's a, not an either or, but a both and. Does that make sense? All right, so why don't we do this? Because oh, we've got some time to chat. Um, I'm going to let Brian turn off the video so people can talk freely, and then, then we can have some time to talk freely Q&A here without everybody anybody worrying about you know they getting caught on camera or anything like that so that's uh, i'm I'm already out there i don't care so Um, but that way if you want to share something or talk about something you can do it but let's pray first brian and then we'll we'll do that father we bless you we thank you for your word father we pray as we learn these things from your word as we come to understand that the absolute miraculous god you are who keeps your word with miracles who created something out of nothing, who brought up people from that which didn't exist. From and that is the work of faith in our heart in being born again into the kingdom of God. So you continue to do that. And that is the means by which you overcome the works of the enemy. You provide the means for us to go from death to life. To go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of your love. And Lord, we do. We, we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers. That we might be part of hastening, hastening that day. When the kingdom of darkness is finally overcome because the kingdom of God has fully come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me know when we're turned off so we can we can chat in here, Brian.